We're going to finish Philippians this morning. So would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4? And I couldn't help but think of a young police recruit uh, recruit while he was in training. Uh, the field training officer uh, looked at him and said, what would you do to disperse an angry mob? And he said, well, I'd tell him I was going to take an offering. <laughs> I don't know why offerings and tithes and all that stuff create so much angst in the church. But this morning, we're going to straighten some stuff out. Amen. Yes. You're mature enough to talk about giving. Yes. Right. Yes. We're students of the word of God. We believe the whole thing is true. Amen. Yes. Now, as we come to our final visit to what we have declared to be Monument Valley, we're going to arrive at a pair of scriptural pillars. Once again, that as we have mentioned with other encounters of verses that most Christians are familiar with, we need to understand them within their context. And there's two beauties this morning that we do need to do uh, and practice that as we gain our understanding from them. Now, our message last time, a couple of weeks ago, was titled, You Are What You Think. And if we're not careful to read verses in context like those we'll encounter today, you can come away thinking the wrong thing about them and therefore have the wrong expectation of them. Now, I find our verses to be quite interesting in recognizing we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Amen. It is profitable Amen. for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, all the things Paul said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 2 Timothy 3.16. And that means that even the closing salutation and greetings is inspired by God, and there's a message within it. And that's what we're going to find this morning. Because within this thanks that Paul is offering to the church at Philippi for their generous care, financial care for him, what we're going to find tucked in there is the principles of giving. Now, it's got quiet in here already. I told you not to do that. Now, in Luke 16, 13, Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then Jesus said, You cannot, meaning it can't happen, you cannot serve God and what? Mammon. That means money. That means riches. Now, Jesus didn't say you cannot have a relationship with God and have money. He said you can't serve both because one of them is going to be your master and you'll despise the other. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 7, Paul said, but I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap how? Sparingly. sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap how? Bountifully. bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Does he still? Yes. Absolutely. We should be cheerful about the subject and not get all bent out of shape because somebody mentions giving in church. It's part of the Christian life and experience. I'm waiting. Now, the fact that the Philippians were generous showed that mammon, money, was not their master. And Paul is going to thank them for the display of their heart and care and compassion toward him through their generosity and the ministry that God had called them to. Now, I will be the first to say that there are two areas of abuse in the church today. One is the gifts of the Spirit, and the other is giving. But I will also be the first to say that we cannot let those who abuse these things rip us off of the beautiful truths that are within them. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And in Acts chapter 8, 14 to 20, we're told about this type of mentality uh, that we see today. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had fallen on none of them. 
They'd only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them what? Money saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, how much you got? <laughs> Peter said, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Listen, God's gifts are not for sale. And you can't have them because you sow seed money into some boza, I mean, uh, some person's ministry. You can't sell these things. As a matter of fact, uh, this particular encounter here introduced to society or the church the practice of simony, thinking that you can get uh, what someone else has through uh, money or purchase them with money in the realm of spiritual gifts. Now, the gifts are for today. Amen. The principles of giving are for today. The second uh, yes was weaker than the first. I don't know why, but we'll fix that before we leave today. And therefore, those who pair the gifts and financial abuse are with us today as well. Now, people will argue of the word uh, use of the word tithe in the New Testament age. They'll cite Paul's words in 2 Corinthians as, you know, you should only give what you can give cheerfully or only the cheerful need to give. Everybody else is exempt. Others will use the abusers of our day for justification for not giving. And by that, lump all pastors and churches into the realm of the charlatans of our day. And listen, if there is a single lesson to take from Paul's closing words, it is our title today. And that is no matter what your position is on the word tithe, no matter how righteously indignant you get over the abusers, the fact of the matter is, and here's our title, it is better to give. It is better to give. Now, our title is not pack your bags, we're going on a giving guilt trip. Uh, we're not going to put a thermometer on the wall and take offerings until it's full. Okay? Now, the truth is, it's sad that this issue has caused so much consternation in and about the church. Because the fact is, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful aspect of the church of God. And people today are being robbed of its majesty, and thus saints are being robbed of its blessings. Now, there's a very large church outside the Chicago area uh, that has experienced, according to their own words, a significant decline in giving since the pandemic started to the tune of over 25%. Well, listen, I'm happy to report to you that during the pandemic, giving at this church went up. Yeah. Giving at Jack's church went up. Yeah. Giving at Bible teaching churches went up. Yeah. This church, it went down. And their response is they brought in a prosperity teacher to teach on giving. And with the permission of the host church, the church then, through this prosperity teacher, offered the congregants a 100% refund on their tithe if they weren't satisfied with the return on investment. In other words, if you don't get all the money that you think you ought to get from tithing, then we'll give you all your money back. Well, listen, if that's your understanding of tithing, like it's some kind of uh, guaranteed to go up stock purchase, you don't understand biblical giving at all. And Acts 20, 35, at least the second half of the verse, uh, Paul says there, recorded by Luke, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Have you ever done something for somebody that felt really good? Yes. I'm thinking we ought to do that a lot. Yes. 
and I think we'll feel a lot better more frequently, don't you? Yes. Because it is more of a blessing to give than receive. And it's not that we shouldn't expect to experience the blessings of giving or the benefits of giving. It's that the blessings and benefits are not, a, not the motivation for giving. And that's what Paul is going to expose for us here. And he's going to make it clear that it is better to give, but we give for the purpose of expanding God's kingdom and supporting the ministry of reaching other people. Now, it is this that will be the context for the two pillars of Scripture we're going to encounter this morning. And listen, if you feel yourself beginning to tense up already because of this subject, chill. Just relax. Listen, what we're going to talk about this morning is that it's better to give for you and it's better to give for me. And we're going to understand why through our time this morning. So would you stand and read with me, please, from Philippians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 10 through 13 initially, but finish the chapter before we're done. Philippians 4, read with me please, 10 to 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Lord, thank you that we can get through this message through the strength you'll provide today uh, without getting bent out of shape or uh, have thoughts in our minds that are errant and uh, outside of what we're trying to accomplish today. What we want to know today is what you say. And so, Lord, we ask you to give us ears to hear what it is as we read and make our way through your word. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think the first thing to point out is that if every pastor approached the subject of giving the way Paul does, a lot more Christians would understand it's better to give. And he does so in such a warm and uh, rejoicing manner. And remember, Paul says <clears throat> that what they did for him caused him to rejoice. He's rejoicing in prison. He's rejoicing chained between two Roman guards. He describes the gift that they sent to him through Epaphroditus as evidence of their care for him. And he says, at last, your care has continued. He says, not that you didn't care. He said, but you didn't have the opportunity. And likely his incarceration uh, prevented or at least interrupted momentarily their ability to send financial support to Paul. And some commentators believe that this phrase, at last, was actually a portion of the greeting they sent with a financial donation and Paul was simply responding to that. He said, listen, this whole at last thing, you know, it isn't that I was all, you know, worked up or been out of shape or even didn't have, an all, my, have all my needs met. He said, the fact of the matter is, uh, I can do all these things. I can do all the experiences that I've had. It wasn't your fault. And I believe he was letting them know that he rejoiced in, the, uh, in their gift, but also the absence of their gift was not a cause for personal suffering. He didn't want them to feel guilty about the inability to show their care for him. No pastor ought to be guilting people into giving. We give because we love the Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, he says, you know what? I, I've learned in whatever state I am to just be content, to be content in the Lord. And this is why he could write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10, that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. We've all heard it. You've never seen a hearse pull in a U-Haul. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be what? 
content, but listen to what he says. Those who desire to be rich fall into, into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many what? Sorrows. Sorrows. Listen, let's, let's clean some stuff up here. I can't even tell you how many times I've heard what Paul just said to Timothy misquoted, and we need to understand what it says. The Bible does not teach that money is evil. Money's not evil. But what you do with it can be. And what you'll do to get it can be. But money in itself is not evil. After all, Abraham was very rich. He was blessed in livestock, gold, and silver. And God's the one that blessed him. King David was very rich. His son Solomon, when the Lord said, what can I do for you now that you're going to be king? He said, give me wisdom to rule your people. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give you that, and I'm going to throw in more money than anybody's ever had to boot. Money is not evil. Listen, the other thing we need to straighten out is that the Bible does not teach that the love of money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The love of money is not the root of all evil. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In other words, the Bible teaches that loving money can produce all kinds of evil actions, just like lust and just like pride. It is not the source of every kind of evil, like many misquote. And Paul could write this to Timothy because he lived it. He had been abased, which means to live in lowly circumstances. He had also lived super abundantly, which is the meaning of the word abound. He'd been full. He'd been hungry. He had abounded and he suffered need. And then he says, and listen, here's how this should actually be translated and is in some translation, but unfortunately not ours. He says in light of all these experiences, he says, I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do abundance and I can do leanness. I can do fullness and I can do hunger. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, verse 13 is not a formula for becoming Superman or Wonder Woman. That's not what that verse means. It's a testimony of someone who had the roller coaster ride through life just like you and me. Has everybody, anybody here had, you know, hey, well, things were going good and then something wonky happened? A car breaks down at the most unfortunate time. This is what Paul is saying. You know what? The ups and downs of life, the roller coaster ride of life. I don't think Paul knew what a roller coaster was, but you do. He said, you know, I can do those things. I can do those things through Christ. I can do the fact that, you know, you, you, had, you cared for me. You had compassion on me, but you didn't have opportunity to support me. I, I could do that. Yeah, I got hungry, but I can do that. Yeah, it was a lean time, but I can do that. And here's what Paul is saying in regards to the gift he received from the Philippians and what we can learn amongst the principles of giving. Listen, giving is an expression of love for God and others. Giving is an expression of love for God and others. Now, before you mentally start typing your email, I did not say, if you don't give, you don't love God. Anybody hear me say that? That's because I didn't say it. I did not say if you don't give, you don't love God. I said it is an expression of love for God and others, not the exclusive expression of love for God and others. Now, we're told by Jesus in Luke 6, 38. What's the first word? Yeah. Give. And it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, it will be put into your wallet. No. <laughs> into your what? 
bosom. There's internal rewards for this type of living. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Then Jesus said in John 13, 17, if you know these things, that's good enough. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then finally in John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The directive to give, is that a suggestion or a commandment? So we need to keep his commandments. Amen. Giving is an expression of love for God. Paul gives evidence here that he considered the gift from the Philippians to be an expression of love for him. How is it an expression of love for God? Because he said to give and we show love for him by doing what he said. It's just that simple. It's not complicated. Amen. Amen. So listen, instead of bickering over whether or not tithing is a New Testament principle, why don't we just settle on this? It's better to give. Let's just settle on that. Now, I find it quite puzzling how some people today see any mention of giving as manipulation or a violation of Scripture. But think about this. God told the Jews to give of their first fruits of their labors. They're God's chosen people. The church is God's chosen people. So why would we think it's strange for God to incorporate giving into the practices of the, of the New Testament age Christian? Now, a couple of scriptures. I want to read these to you, and then we'll make a point from them a couple uh, uh, down the road a little bit. We'll mention something about them here, but we'll mention them again in a moment. In Exodus 25, 1-9, Then the Lord spoke all three services. Man, you could hear a pen drop in here because of the subject today. So every once in a while, when I look up, you smile. There we go. That's better. Now, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it. How? Willingly in his heart. There's that Second Corinthians thing. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Mud, dirt, <laughs> discards, whatever they don't want. They're junk for Jesus. No, what do you say? Here's what you take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skin dyed red for the outer portion of the tabernacle, badger skins for the inner skin of the wall of the tabernacle, and acacia wood for building the furniture in the tabernacle, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod in the breastplate of the high priest, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. In other words, God said, I'm going to give you a materials list for my temporary dwelling place that will travel with you wherever you go. It seemed like God was kind of particular about what it was made of. He gave them specific details. And listen, we've heard over the years and, you know, in our history, uh, we've done some traveling as a church. Somebody suggested, you know, we can't call ourselves Calvary Chapel Tustin anymore. That's why Tustin's not on the sign. But uh, Pastor Dave has uh, suggested, and it's a good suggestion, that we call ourselves Calvary Chapel Tri-City so we can keep the CCT because we've tried three cities. And uh, <laughs> uh, here we are in our third. And you know what they say, the third's a charm. charm. So, you know, but it's interesting. We've heard over the years, you know, well, why, why would you spend spend money on, on a building that you don't own? Well, first of all, you know, that's kind of a, a strange question. It's like, why would you take a bath? You're just going to get dirty again. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, right? And, and besides the fact, listen, the church is not in the real estate business. And, and the second thing about that is that 
every church is going to be empty after the rapture. So who cares? Who cares if you owned it or not? Right? We need to take care of it. This is the house of the Lord. And if God gave specific details to a tabernacle that traveled that was with the Israelites, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, if he said, hey, I want stuff made out of gold, uh, acacia wood covered with gold and silver, and I want the trumpets made out of silver, and all the instruments of worship made out of silver, then we need to take care of this place. Because it's where we gather to meet God. Amen? Amen. So what was the people's response? Well, we have it by implication in Exodus 36, 6, and 7. Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient for all the work that had to be done. Indeed, too much. What did the people bring? Too much. Now, Again, giving being a sore subject is just bizarre for me because it's, it's better to give. It's an expression of love for God and others. It helps us take care of the place that God has given us. And you know what? So we've tried three cities. You know what? We have three places where we beautified a building to honor God and to worship Him within it. And, you know, uh, God's not going to hold us accountable for our stock portfolio uh, when we get to heaven, he's going to hold us accountable for, did you teach my book? Right. Did you be a benefit and blessing to the community? And we can say yes to those uh, inquiries. Now, it's something the Lord has directed us to do. And we'll find one of the reasons uh, in a moment. But the main reason is, it's better to give. Better for us, better for others, better for the work of God. Look at verses 14 through 17. Nevertheless, you have done well that you've shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to what? Your account. And Paul now pairs the fact that, you know, God's grace is sufficient for us with the participation in God's grace of his people. And he said, you know, I can do all these things. I've done them before and I'll do them again. But he underscores that the relief that had been uh, experienced through the gift that was brought to him and their generosity uh, throughout the course of his ministry was something that not only enabled it, but it was a blessing to him. And he encourages him in a fact that for a while they were the only ones supporting him. And he says, you know what, as a matter of fact, uh, I was only in Thessaloniki for three Sabbaths, and you sent multiple gifts within three weeks. He said, you guys have always been behind what God has called me to do. You've done well, he said, which is where we derive our title from. It's better to give. Now, Paul reaches back to his ministry history. He says, even back then, you were with me, and even beyond, you were with me repeatedly. You were supportive of the necessities of life and ministry and were generous with me. And in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, Paul says this, command. What's that word mean? Command. command. Those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Now, again, it's not a sin to be rich, right? right? It's not a sin to be rich. God gives some the power uh, to gain wealth. As a matter of fact, he lays that claim in Deuteronomy. He says, it's me who gives you the power to gain wealth. Not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to do what? Enjoy. To enjoy. 
He says to the rich, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And then James tells us this in James 2, 14 to 17, which many in uh, uh, early in church history, including even uh, down through church history, some dubbed this James uh, epistle, the epistle of straw. They said it didn't fit with the rest of the Bible because it taught that works were important. And uh, that's because works are important. <laughs> and James, the half-brother of the Lord, says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but not a, does not have works? Can faith save him? If a Now he gives an example. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Oh, depart in peace, be warm and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What is a profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that's what he's saying. He uses an example that fits well into what we're talking about here today. Just to say something isn't the same as doing something. Be warm and be filled. Oh, depart in peace. Be warm and be filled. But if you don't do what's necessary to meet those needs, that's an unprofitable statement. It is dead faith. Now think back to what we read earlier about the building of the tabernacle. Where did the Lord tell Moses to get the provision for the tabernacle? Tell the children of Israel. Tell my people. Tell my chosen people what I want as far as provision and supplies for the things necessary to build. And he didn't say, Moses, no. 6, 14, 21, 28, 39, and 42. Those are your lotto numbers. And if you... Uh, he, he didn't say, did you guys write those down? <laughs> he, did, he didn't, because if you win the lotto, you know where 10 percent's going. No, no, I'm, just, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Totally kidding. <laughs> he didn't say, go to the fourth rock behind the third tree, and there's a pot of gold there, Mo, and you can finance it. He didn't say, you know what, you're going to stumble on a diamond mine tomorrow, 78 steps from here and 42 in that direction. You know what? He said, what is needed for the work that I have assigned you is going to come from the people. And their response was, too much. They brought too much. Why? Better to give. And again, don't miss the lesson here by getting uptight about the subject. Paul told Timothy, James told the church, that God's provision comes through God's people. And what James would add is that if God's people say, be warm and filled, but don't give what is needed, they're practicing dead faith. And listen, there's multiple points we could make from our middle section here, but I wanted to throw in a couple of bonus points. Are you ready for these? Yes. Listen, giving should be approached with gratitude, not an attitude. <laughs> giving should be approached with gratitude, not an attitude. And our second is this. Listen, giving is an act of adoration, not a response to manipulation. Yeah. Giving is an act of adoration, not a response to manipulation. Now, these are the two bonus points. Here's the one within the context of our time. Listen this morning, giving is a biblical doctrine, not some charlatan's invention. Giving is a biblical doctrine, not some charlatan's invention. And if you haven't noticed, we're trying to wipe away the excuses that people often make for not participating in uh, something that is definitely biblical. And, and Paul says this, I'm not seeking the gift itself, but actually what I'm after is the fruit you're going to get from having been faithful in this area. And that's why it's better to give. At least that's a reason. The giver will benefit from having done so. Now, consider this about our point. The Jews gathered in a synagogue. 
Christians gather in a church. The Jews were called to live a life distinct from the world. The church is called to come out from the world and be separate. The Jews were given seven ordinances to commemorate that all pointed to the coming Messiah. The church was given two ordinances that point back to the Messiah who has come. The Jews were given specific instructions on giving. The church, nothing. Does that make any sense? It all breaks down. And listen, even if tithing was strictly an Old Testament principle, that doesn't mean the church was not given instructions on giving. So let me say this, just so people have a reason to email me. <laughs> I don't have a problem with the word tithe. I don't have a problem with that being foundational or starting point because the Bible clearly teaches a tithe, the tenth, and giving or offerings. And here's why I don't have a problem with it. And here is how we're going to eliminate the argument that it's only uh, for those under the law. At Genesis 14, 18 to 20, we're told about Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine. These are the communion elements. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him Melchizedek a what? A tithe of all was Abram under the law. No, there was no law. So you cannot make the argument that tithing is strictly a component of the law. That's an invalid argument. Abram paid tithes, not under the law. Are we under the law? No, we're not under the law. So maybe we ought not to get so uptight about the word tithe. Somebody say, Amen. now, one more thing, just to make sure all the naysayers have reason to write me and rebuke me at dlandis at cctustin.com. <laughs> Now, now listen to this. In Genesis 4, 3 to 6. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Uh, see anything symbolic there with the firstborn? And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, what's your problem? Well, he didn't say that. He said, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do what? Well. well, will you not be accepted? What's the context here? He's talking about sacrifices. He's talking about an offering. In other words, Cain, bring the right offering and all accepted. But Cain didn't. Cain brought what he wanted to give to the Lord. He brought what maybe wouldn't be so costly. He picked a couple of apples and a pomegranate and three bananas and gave those to the Lord. Well, obviously... Cain and Abel were told by someone that bringing an offering to the Lord was the appropriate thing to do. And I've got a sneaking hunch. It was the one who used to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with their mom and dad who slayed an animal to cover their nakedness with the skin of an animal, instituting a blood sacrifice to cover fallen man. And I think God is saying, listen, Cain, What's the deal, man? I told you what you are to bring. And you brought what you wanted. You brought what you thought was acceptable and not what I desired. And he said, you know what? This thing is going to cost you if you're not careful about it. If you do well, you will be accepted. But if you don't do well, sin is at the door and it's after you. And its desire is for you. Now, 
The idea that tithing is the only biblical form of giving, that's also in error. I do think that we can use it as at least a starting point. Somebody say amen. amen. And again, Paul said the reason to give and support the ministry is because it will be fruitful for the giver. And this is why it's better to give. It's better for who? You, me. It's better for us who give. And, and this has always been how God has financed his work and missionary efforts in the world. It's always been through his people. It's always how things have been constructed. God supplied through his people. And there are things that are necessary for the work of ministry and God's people are the financial resource pool for those things because giving is a biblical doctrine, not some charlatan's invention. Are there charlatans? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But listen, we're going to do away with that here in our closing section. They're at least the thinking, the justification for not seeing the biblical doctrine portion. Look at 18 to 23. Paul continues and says, you guys okay? Yes. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you. And then he describes it like a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Somebody say, Amen. Now, it seems likely that Paul was wanting to make sure they didn't think he was trying to solicit another offering from them by saying, you know what? What Epaphroditus delivered, I got everything I need. It was so wonderful, so generous. It was a sweet-smelling aroma. It was a sacrifice that you offered uh, unto the Lord that I benefited from. And having revealed the proper motive for giving, which is love for God and others, and the reason for giving, it's a biblical doctrine, he now addresses why it's better to give. He's saying that when we do things that are pleasing to God, God responds. And God's response is supplying all our need according to the glorious riches from knowing Christ Jesus. And he reminds them in verse 20 that our God and Father alone deserves glory. And this should give us an opportunity to pause and make note of something from 1 Chronicles 16, 28 and 29 where the people are told, give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord glory, do his name. Bring a what? An offering and come before him. And you know, one of the things I think that's interesting just from this passage that we often overlook is we often sing about giving God glory. We often talk about giving God glory. But what we need to remember is that we're not adding to his glory by doing those things. His glory can't be added to we're simply acknowledging all the glory that he has. He doesn't need anything from us. And listen, if you're sitting here thinking, here's another preacher after your money, let me just say this. God doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He spans the universe from the tip of his pinky to the, his thumb. He hangs the earth on nothing. He sits over the circle of the earth. He rides on the clouds. And those who uh, challenge him, he laughs at them. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He doesn't need your money. And he's not after your money. The giving is for you. That's right. It's not for him. And listen, what, what we're told here in First Chronicles is why giving can be done cheerfully because it's not an obligatory act. God deserves glory. That's right. And bringing an offering to him is one way in which we give him glory. And Paul says, I want every saint in Philippi to know how grateful I am for their financial support of this ministry. And he sends greetings from those who were with him. 
And then he puts this nail in the proverbial coffin, especially those from the household of Caesar. You know why he said especially those? Because it was from Paul's imprisonment that the Philippian church supported him in, that they heard the gospel and got saved. Amen. And Paul said, you got that fruit. And the household of Caesar wants you to know the servants and the Roman soldiers who were attached to him, one on each arm with an 18-inch chain, who heard Paul preach day and night, who heard Paul preach to other people who were captive audiences for Paul, and many of them got saved. Paul said, those people especially want you to know how grateful they are for what you've done. Now, this brings us to our final point of why it's better to give. And we'll close with a caveat to our last point. And the, fir the first thing to note is this in our uh, concluding section. Listen, giving helps further the spread of the gospel. Yes. Plain and simple. Yes. Giving helps further the spread of the gospel. Now we'll get to the caveat in a moment, but the first thing we need to recognize is that spreading the gospel has a cost associated with it. You know how we know? And people like, you know, you know somebody said one time, you know, griping about pastors getting paid, which is biblical. I mean, do you want to get paid for your J-O-B? Well, then the pastor should get paid for his. Even though it's a calling, it's still a job. You still, you know, believe I, somebody said to me a long time ago, I didn't know you were here uh, at other times. I just thought you showed up on Sunday and Wednesday. Uh, no, no, if you want to, you know, if you want to learn how to, how to work full time, you can get in the ministry and you'll learn something new about full time. It's just, it's all the time. It's every day. And all the time, but somebody said, you know, I don't know why pastors get paid. The pastors shouldn't get paid. The Mormon elders don't get paid. Wow. Well, they're going to hell, too. <laughs> I don't want any part of that. I mean, they need to be born again, right? I mean, what a, what a stupid argument. And uh, back to our regularly scheduled message. I, I gotta, but, but listen. We also need to note that as it pertains to the church, the work of the church includes other things as well. And they are part and parcel, and they open the door for the gospel, to be sure. And listen, Malachi 3.10 says, and for those who knew I was going to say this, you're welcome. <laughs> Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, in case you're wondering what the storehouse the Lord is referring to. He says that there may be food where? In my house. In my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, there will not be enough room to receive it. You know what? That's what happened with the tabernacle. There wasn't enough room to receive it. Everything was covered. And Moses actually had to give a directive to the children of Israel, stop giving. Now, Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Titus 3.14 adds, And let our people also learn to maintain what? Good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. In other words, not meeting urgent needs is unfruitfulness. Not maintaining good works is unfruitfulness. And listen, don't let your mind get hung up on the word tied in Malachi or that Malachi is in the Old Testament and miss the principle that's given there. The principle is this, God wants his house full. God wants his house full so his house can do good to those of the household of faith and meet the urgent needs within the community around it as they have ability. 
Now, whether the house is filled with tithes, gifts, or offerings, whatever word you want to use, the principle stands. God wants his house full, and he wants his people to fill it. Are we on break now, or what, what's exactly <laughs> happening here? Now, when God's people do, he opens the windows of heaven. I mean, this stuff's in the Bible, right? So we should teach it, right? Uh, we shouldn't let the charlatans rip us off from truth. Amen? Amen? Now, he supplies all they need through the riches and glory that are in Christ Jesus when God's people are faithful in what he has called them to do. And, and this is why it's better to give, at least one reason. But if you want to get all uptight about it and cite all your reasons for not giving about tithe or abuse or whatever, here's my counsel. Don't give. Yeah. You don't want to give? Don't give. Like I said, God's not after your wallet. It reminds me of this, you know, J. Vernon McGee, who is Scottish in his heritage, and the Scots are notoriously thrifty. I'll just use that word. And McGee told the story of an old Scotsman sitting in the back of the church, and the offering plate came by, and he reached in his pocket, thought he grabbed a quarter, but he actually grabbed a $20 gold piece, threw it into the plate, and his eye watched it travel into the, the plate, and he wanted it back and to put the quarter in. Well, afterwards, he went to the men counting the offering, including the pastor was back there and, and said, you know, I feel kind of funny, but I, I actually accidentally put a, a $20 gold piece on the plate. Pastor said, hey, thanks. He said, well, well, I want it back. He said, you can't have it back. You put it in the plate. And, and the man said, well, at least I'll get credit for the 20 bucks. And the pastor said, no, you get credit for the quarter. Listen, if you're going to get all grumpy about it, then don't give. But I'm telling you this, it's better to give. It's better to give out of love for God and others because the Bible teaches it's the right thing. And the why of giving is because you want to see the gospel spread by those who are called and ordained to do so. Because the fact is, those who finance the work of God share in the fruit of the work of God. That's what Paul is saying. Now, I mentioned a caveat. You ready for it? John 12, 1 to 6 is where we'll find the foundation for it. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, Martha served, but Lazarus was one who sat at the table with him, Jesus. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, who? Judas, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said... Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. You know, there are people that are like this today. Yeah. Oh, we care for this, we care for that. And listen, Judas, or rather Jesus, knew Judas was a devil when he called him. He said, did I not choose you 12 and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus knew Judas would betray him when he called him. Judas knew Jesus, or Jesus knew Judas was a thief when he called him. And yet Jesus, being the head of this group, let him carry the money box. Now, what do we need to see from that? And that's just this. Jesus didn't allow the fact that there was a financial abuser among them keep the others from answering their call. The caveat is this. Listen. Giving helps further the spread of the gospel. Amen? Yes. Giving helps further the spread of the gospel. Here's our caveat. But don't give your money to a known thief. Right. 
Don't give your money to a known thief. Well, how do you identify a thief or a charlatan? Well, they tell others to be warm and filled and do nothing for them and then get on their Gulfstream jet because it gets them quicker to the mission field. They are telling others to give for the sake of getting. They say, sow seed money into their ministries and you'll be rich, when the truth is the only one that gets rich is the recipient, not the giver. They don't say, I've been abased. I've been in need and hungry. They say, you should never be abased. You should always abound. You should always be full and you shouldn't have any need. And therefore, the lesson from Judas and what we just said is we cannot let a liar make us into thieves. A thief who robs ourselves of the benefits of giving. Are there crooks in the church? Yes. You betcha. Just like there was a crook among the disciples. Well, listen, here's the last of our verses for the day. And there's uh, one, two, three, four, 78 of them. No, there's just four. Mark 6, 35 to 37. Now, when the day was far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place in the, uh, already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he, Jesus, answered them, the disciples, and said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, they didn't say, we don't have that kind of money. They said, you want us to spend that kind of money? And we do know what happened. Jesus said, all right, what do you have? We have five loaves and two fish. Jesus said, ah, that's enough. We can feed everybody. We can feed all 5,000 men plus women and children with that. That's funny. And then in John 4, 7 and 8, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to do what? Buy to buy food. They, they had provision, right? Right? Yes. 1 Corinthians 9, 14. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let those who... Uh, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the laborer is worthy of its wages. Those are both illustrations of what was said by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.14. Those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now, here's the point of all that. Judas being a crook didn't change the rules for giving. And therefore, no Christian can use crooks as an excuse or validation for not giving because the fact is better to give yeah. just don't give to crooks and they're easy to recognize all you got to do is study the bible and listen to what they're teaching and if what they're teaching isn't in line with what the word of god says then then don't support them i mean it's really not that complicated right and let me just throw this out too you know what, when somebody writes a book and it's a bunch of garbage and it says this is going to happen and that's going to happen and it doesn't happen um, don't buy the next one. Okay? Don't buy the next one. Somebody proves themselves to be a false prophet, don't finance the continuation of their false ministry. Don't buy the next book. Now, in contrast, when the church is spreading the gospel, being faithful to the word, make sure God's house is full. You know why? It's better to give. Somebody say amen. amen.